Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have with us an expert in the multi-family space, but like more of an expert than most of the people I talk to. And that's why I'm very excited to have uh, this conversation. This is a guy that's been kind of uh, in front of the curve uh, in, an, in a number of uh, cycles where he called, uh, called his timing right, which is you know how, how we, I shouldn't say we, because I always lose money, but, but how one makes money in real estate and other asset classes. So this guy was frankly a genius. Uh, sold, sold everything in 07 before you know what uh, hit the you know what. Uh, back in in 2010, uh, knew it was was getting fixed terms when everybody else was leveraging and and and, and getting variable loans, which now they're um, you know in a world of hurt, et cetera, et cetera. He is the managing partner of Elkhorn Capital Partners. He is Bruce Fraser. Bruce. Welcome to Street Smart Success. Thanks, Roger. Hope I don't say anything stupid after that kind of intro. <laughs> you know, I have a feeling. You know, I, I have a hunch you're not going to. That's that's just going to be my guess, Bruce. Uh, well, before we get into the real estate stuff that uh, you and I both really want to talk about, tell tell me the Bruce Fraser background. I I know you're in in the Lone Star State in the uh, one the, the thriving metropolis of Dallas, I believe. But where do you hail from? Are you a native Texan? What's the what's the background, Bruce? Pre real estate. Yeah, born and raised Texan. You know, office here, work here, or you know, live here. Went to school here, undergrad and grad at SMU, um, eco finance undergrad, finance MBA. Haven't haven't strayed far. Met a girl in in college, undergrad, and she was local, and we just stayed here because that's where the families were. Boy, and there, there's no follow up questions to that. Okay. You, 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 <laughs> Interestingly, though, we don't invest in Texas anymore. At least it got—it's uh, a great market, uh, it, a net migration recipient. But uh, it being just—we uh, can get into it later. But it just isn't my flavor, and so everything we own is is in the South and Midwest. But it's not. Well, you know in Texas. what? Uh, I try not to be linear in my questions and try to be more um, spontaneous. Is the wrong word, but. Yeah, kind of spontaneous. So I'll ask right off. Why? Why not? Let's let's answer that question. Why not Texas? That's fascinating because everybody else is. Oh my God, the top five growing markets in the country are in Texas, et cetera, et cetera. And you know the projections are this, and you can't miss. So tell me, that's fascinating right um, out of the gate. Um, I'm a quant. quant. You know, I, I as you mentioned, I think I, I used to run a hedge fund, uh, sidestep the financial crisis. Started, uh, you know, had formally had some investment property with one business partner, but we sold it in 07 based on the research we were doing. And then started Elkhorn Capital Partners in 2010 and started um, started buying again. Initially, you couldn't couldn't get bank lending still for the first couple of years because the banks were bleeding, much like now. But a couple of years into it, just became solely focused on multifamily. I did start investing in Dallas initially. But when people were willing to pay a four cap on a C property that was already 100% occupied, we'd already boosted around 15%. It seemed like time to take my money and go elsewhere. The reason um, I don't, it's from the equity market 
kind of reference, it's the momentum stock, right? You're, you're buying at a really high PE and hoping to flip it to the next greater full at an even higher PE. Problem is when music stops like it did in the last year, maybe two years, uh, transaction volume ceases. It's you don't have a way to make money because your your theory or your thesis was to sell it to someone at a lower or higher valuation, lower cap rate than what you bought it at. So we like to target assets where we can make money by owning them, not just by selling them. And you can't pay a four cap and do that. So that seems to me to be when you were paying four caps, or not you because you weren't, but when when the market was paying four caps for C-class in Texas, it sounds like that was starting, and you'll correct me if this is not correct, but like 2019-ish, maybe a little before, but certainly by 2021, even sub four for for a C-class. So when did you stop yeah. buying in, in Texas? Uh, probably too early. <laughs> we, you know, we, uh, it, was, it was a number of years ago. I don't actually recall the year. I've been at it for a while now, but it, it's years ago when we stopped investing here. So, um, you know, we, we actually ended up developing a niche because of the valuations and, and how hard it was to find deals that made sense. We developed a niche in acquiring distress or doing distress situation acquisitions. So we target properties that are in, in, in need capital infusion to, to bring the property quality back online or have just been terribly managed and run it into the ground. We see examples all the time where owners will just pull every dollar out of the property. They don't leave any money for the property management company to reinvest. And so you end up with tenants move out and might be a hole in the wall or there might be missing appliances or appliances are broken and they don't have money to replace that or fix that. And so you end up with a half full property and no inventory to rent. And that's when our phone rings either when it's about to go to the bank or the bank, it maybe already has it. And, um, or it's not always that bad. Sometimes it's just underperforming asset. You know, we have one under contract right now that we're fortunate enough to be getting. It's a, it's a higher quality asset than we would normally be buying. But uh, we normally wouldn't have even bid on this, but there's just no bidders at the table right now because so many people are in trouble with their own portfolios. They're just having to spend all of their time uh, focused inwardly, trying to solve their debt issues or doing, you know, deploying their investor capital by doing capital calls to, to feed the, the deals are already in. And so fortunately, we're not in that situation, but we're benefiting from it implicitly, even though the, the deals that some of the deals we're looking at are not directly in distress. Since the other buyers aren't there, we get the phone call and say, hey, we need a strong buyer at the table. Nobody's here. Come see what you think it's worth. And that's okay. what happened on this one. Uh, and when I, the, the way you're describing these situations, like the, the, what's going on in my brain is I'm, I'm seeing like C-class properties. Is that accurate? Generally, yes. Generally, we have been heavy, um, heavy ownership in C workforce properties, because that's where it tends to be the distress with the bad ownership. Uh, the A properties, you know, it, it doesn't take a rocket science, scientist to, to run that thing. But the, the one that we're under contract now is a B. And so it's, it's a little bit nicer, but it's 100% classic. Yeah, in a, in a more healthy economy or um, real estate market, there probably would have been two dozen bidders for this property, you know, bidding against each other and doing call for offers and best in finals and all of those sorts of things. But that's not the environment okay. we're in right now. And I think you said before we started recording uh, that you just brought on management in-house, I think. So my question is, prior to this, when you were you know, in the, with this niche, sounds to me like 
you know, very, very heavy lift on the, on the construction side, right? On the, on the value add piece of it. And in, in then in the, how did you handle that given that they were out of, you know, not in, not in Texas? Yeah, well, we have, you know, we have a number of properties um, all in the same area. In a general area, we have two different MSAs, but they're about an hour and a half from each other. And so we have asset manager that lives up in market. We have general contractor relationships that you know, they're not they're not in house, but it it almost feels like they're an in house partner because we use them so heavily, and I've used them over and over. And so we oversee all of those projects ourselves. And you're right; they are um, often very heavy lift. You know, though. Last two that we did were both foreclosures. One was a Freddie Mac foreclosure, and then one that we did last year was a bank foreclosure that we took over. And both were at least half the units were down in the studs, and we had to basically rebuild the units and bring them back online. But doing that sort of thing, it's a it's a hell of a lot of work in the first year or two, but it's a absolute clear path to to profits. Which you know, it's interesting, nice. so it- and we don't have to throw in an amenity at, at a property and hope we can boost the rents. I mean, we just make the unit livable again and we're going to get the rent. <laughs> um, okay. So, and what are the, what are the two MSAs? Right now, we're heavily concentrated in Oklahoma City and Tulsa, okay. which are also net recipients of, or, or recipients of the net migration that we're seeing going on in the country. Yeah, we're very quantitative in our approach and how we target markets. And we're not in Tulsa just because we're in Oklahoma City. Uh, it is, they're both top 10 markets for space on how we identify. Okay. And then typically, what do you guys put into these properties per unit? What does that look like? You know, it's not as heavy as you would think. Uh, you know, I, I heard somebody at a conference last week saying that they buy C properties in Dallas and put 40 or 50K a door into them. And that just seems crazy to me because you still have a flat roof seed class looking property when you're done. The interiors are probably really nice, but I just don't see how that math works. So generally, we're spending probably five to 10 grand a door. On a, on a normal turn where we're just doing flooring and paint fixtures, that sort of thing. But if we're rebuilding a basically, you know, down to the studs, it's going to be more like 35, 45K a door. And how long do you typically keep them? Yeah, it depends on the situation. We have some that we, when we went into it, we, we knew that we would want to own it long term. Uh, you know, we have some of those, you know, long term fixed rate debt, three and a half percent. I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to beat. One of them was kind of a similar profile. It was, very low occupancy. Uh, it was not a foreclosure, but they were in arrears a year of payments. They were about to lose it. Some special servicing. We came to the table, brought the property units back online that needed to be, and uh, had you know enormous gains in the first year of value. And, but now we're sitting on it, and you it, it just it's like a, a bulletproof bond at this point. And so it's really nice and tax efficient. But some of them will look at and we say, you know what, we'll do the city a favor, buy this property, and and turn it around, fix it, make it a productive asset again, and we'll be in and out in two or three years. Um, and then it's it's fascinating what you're doing. I mean, as a as an investor, it sounds uh, very um, intriguing and, and, and appealing. How long have you been like like when did you identify these two markets? And maybe you didn't at the same time, but what's what's the time frame? Yeah, we we've been up there for many years. Uh, we you know initially I was in DFW. When I sold out of DFW, we actually went out to West Texas for a couple of years, and it was just it was just too small of markets for us. We we look at markets initially. I thought <laughs> a former stock market guy. I thought I would want to spread, be diversified, be in all different markets. 
But I found pretty quickly that, no, we really want to be heavily concentrated in markets. It just gives us a strategic advantage because we know that market intimately. We know what side of the street to be on, what side of the street not to be on. We know which properties have plumbing problems because our maintenance guys may have worked on it. We know a lot of the managers that are in other properties. And we'll walk into a property to look at it to buy. And there'll be a manager there that we fired and <laughs> stealing or something. And we know, okay, uh, yeah, there, there's some operational upside in this asset. We know it for being right off the bat just because who's sitting at the desk. And that kind of knowledge is invaluable. And, yeah, we, we are good friends and know all of the key brokers in, in the markets. Fish with them, dine with them. They know us, we know them. And um, they know what, what deals to call us on. And it, it's, just, it's just been a really advantage uh, being deep in those markets. So like you said you're, you're, you're kind of uh, an analytical guy. That's not the term you used, but something along those lines. Quant. Quant. Thank you. You're ex- exactly. <laughs> yeah. yep. And so when you identified those markets, was it, okay, they're, to your point, they're in migration, they're growing markets, and the inventory is, is just price right? What more goes into it than that? Um, honestly, one of the things is if I can get there within about four hours by car or a direct flight with Southwest, those are criteria that are important to us because we're very hands-on in our ownership and we are on our properties frequently to talk to the managers and, and just check the, the property, make sure there's something that our trained eye doesn't see that, that they missed or something like that. Um, so that's important to us. You know, and it's not political at all, but red, purple, blue is really important to us. If we have a product and, you know, someone is not paying us for it, we should be able to evict them because that's just good business. And if we're not allowed to evict them, that's bad business. And so we don't uh, own it or want to own in states where we can't evict people very easily. I mean, it's, it's really damn near impossible in California to evict somebody. It could take years, which is just absurd. So we wouldn't own there. Um, the other thing, you know, we, we look at obviously a lot of the same metrics other people would. Unemployment rate, you know, how has that been trending? How did it, what happened to it during COVID? How, did, how quickly did it recover out of COVID? We look at the job growth, population growth, also supply and affordability are big components. You know, there, there are a lot of people having trouble in Houston right now. I would love to own in Houston because just as because it's so close to me and it's so big, we could go buy a ton of doors down there. Problem is, it's a terrible market, in my view, to, to own in because it's almost too friendly, business friendly, because you can get permitting done in a matter just so quickly that if, if you have any rent growth at all, there'll be someone sticks up next door to you in a month or two. And so it caps your ability to raise rents, which is the whole point in owning property as an inflation hedge is because you can increase rents to offset your rising costs. And so people down there are losing properties because they don't have any pricing power whatsoever because there's so much supply always coming on. And, um, and they're getting squeezed with inflation like everybody else. And so uh, it's just a bad market, but it, it's, it's predictable if you do the work. Interesting. Um, the, the, other, the other thing I mentioned was affordability. And again, you can look to see what's the average housing cost in a market relative to the national average. Uh, again, Austin has been a great place to own if you've owned for, you know, from years back, but it's really struggling right now. Prices are getting hit hard. People are, are not able to, to raise rents there. In fact, I think they're cutting rents there right now because again, so much supply has come on board 
And also they push rent so heavily that it's an affordability issue. People just simply can't afford the increases. And so if they bump rents, people have to move out to something else. And um, we want to we target markets where it's below the national average on uh, housing is as a percentage of income. And they may not like the rent bumps, but we know they can afford them. Very logical. I'm sitting here and, and um, I don't know if you knew this, but as, as, if you can see, but as you're describing this, tears are rolling down my cheeks and you may be wondering why that is. And, and the, the reason is because I <laughs> am a partner in properties in all of these markets. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> I should, I should have, uh, we, we should have done this podcast a, a couple of years ago. Oh, you've yeah. got my number now. <laughs> exactly. Oh my goodness gracious. So here, here's something I heard from uh, a guy I've done a, po- a couple podcasts with who's been doing multifamily for n- north of 40 years. Like he's in his late 60s, he's been doing it since his 20s. And, and he says that with class C stuff, that, you know, it's poor, ma- it's decades of, you know, drunken maintenance guys or, you know, guys cutting corners. And so it's like, you just don't know what's behind the walls, uh, most specifically around plumbing. And so I guess, you know, and other issues. So I guess, you know, how, how I guess you just know the right people in that market. You just underwrite it. How do you account for, you know, how do you account for this kind of property and making sure you're, you know, investing the right amount of money and you're not, you know, putting a Band-Aid on stuff every few months for as long as you own. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a valid point. They tend to require higher maintenance, but you just plan for it. You, you don't show up at a C property and be surprised it's a C property. Uh, you have to set aside more maintenance money for that and assume you're going to have some plumbing issues. The old cast iron pipes, they do collapse periodically and you have to pay to get them fixed. So you have good vendors that can do that and you plan, set aside the money um, in advance. Now, the thing is being focused on, on not true low income, but lower, lower income socioeconomic uh, tenants. <sighs> they, they just, on workforce housing, they just, they don't make any more of it. It has to age in basically. You don't, it wouldn't make sense to spend the same amount of money to go build a new workforce housing property as it would be to go build a nice A-class property because the building cost is not that different and the rents are significantly different. And so um, I like it. It's, it's a more limited supply product. Tend, people tend to, uh, if they're economic hard times, you know, the A's are the ones that I think suffer. They're kind of the high the momentum stock, high beta stock of the uh, real estate world. And you're constantly battling that. You know, I think about Dallas here in Uptown, for example. It's a great place to live. It's really, really attractive for young people. You can walk to a lot of restaurants and things like that. But um, yeah, I don't know of any owners that buy it and assume they're going to be having to cut rents in the future years. They're usually modeling rent growth. Well, the reality is though, something newer and nicer will be put up right next to it in a couple of years. And they are then competing with something that's brand new and you know, probably better amenities. And so they end up having to have lower rents, not higher. And that's just a tough market. Also in tough economic times, people make decisions. They decide, you know what? I don't need an apartment with a Viking stove in it. GE cooks just fine and it costs me $500 less a month. And so I think I'll pick that. And so people tend to trade down to B or even, even and the Bs can trade down to C when they're economic hardship times. So... Yeah, we like it. It's historically been 
the uh, most insulated from economic cycles. But, um, you know, we've had a lot of stuff thrown at us the last few years between COVID and interest rates and everything else. But, uh, you know, we're, we're doing very well. Our portfolio across the board is at all-time highs right now since we took over in-house property management. When you say all-time highs in terms of occupancy, NOI, or how? Occupancy, revenue, wow. NOI. Yeah. Good Both for you, man. That is refreshing and impressive. So on the stuff that... We could spend a whole podcast about third-party management. Just story after story of just the crazy stuff we've seen. Uh, we, we just couldn't find anybody competent because we, we, we fought it for years. We really didn't want to, to be in the business, but... Um, we worked with one group initially uh, for years. They grew too rapidly, didn't put their infrastructure in place behind it. They, then they got bought out by private equity and it was all about the you know, chief strategy officers and things like that, not the people that really mattered that were in those apartments running the day-to-day management. And so they, they lost sight of the ball. And then we switched to a younger company that is the only one that sounded like they did anything differently. And it was just a complete disaster uh, with them that the uh, senior person that helped encourage us to move over to that we had we were familiar with the guy. Uh, he had a great experience, and uh, a week after we moved our portfolio to them, his old company bribed him to come back with a big paycheck to try to save their company. And so we were left with um, a team that had no experience running a business and had no experience in multifamily, and, and we were seventy five percent of their business and. We tried to teach them. I said, hey, this is how we need to do this. And uh, well, that's not our process. Like, well, I don't really care what your process is. We're 75% of your business. This is what works. And so we fought that for uh, a number of months, but it got to the point where we wouldn't even authorize them to hire for us anymore because they just did such a poor job at it. Um, so probably the last six months, we were making all the hiring decisions anyway. And um, we just decided to part ways with each other. And we're thrilled that we did that. I mean, since we... Since we took over, it was the second week in March of this year. So what are we, you know, not even eight months, nine, yeah, not even nine months. Yeah. Our portfolio revenue in aggregate is up between 25 and 30%. We have some properties that are up even more than that. We had properties that have been running 90, 91%. Now they're 99, 100. It's just, you know, it's it's about caring about your employees. First of all, saying thank you when they do a good job bonusing them correctly, you know, putting the structure of bonuses in place that's going to incent the right behavior. Because if they're hitting their bonuses, we're thrilled because it's moved the dial even more on our ownership side, right? It, it would seem to me, this is obviously a, a consistent theme. Third-party management goes from average to terrible generally. And so I guess it would appear to me as like for C-class, even worse. I mean, it's, it, it would be, seems like it'd be easier to find somebody to manage a, you know, an A-class building than a C-class, you know, with just the day-to-day grind of running that kind of property. You know, you can, the staffing at a property, especially a C, it's a tough job. It's a really tough job. Even, even on a, a really nice property, it's a balance because you have to be friendly with them, but you can't be friends because there is a business relationship there between the manager and the tenants. And so... It's, it's a hard line or to, to balance, but I think that the way we view it with the employees is we don't want to be squeezing them, cutting expenses, taking it out of their pocket. We'll, we'll give them a, a good base, but we'll let them make a lot more than they could anywhere else if they hit their bonuses. And so it, it helps attract employees that want to work hard and are motivated by money. And that gets the results that we need. So. 
that's that's just kind of the approach we're we're going. Because if if you just squeeze them and you don't pay them, well, you get to the point where they just don't care, and they know, hey, I could go replace this job anywhere at the price point that a lot of these people make. I could go down the street and make the same thing, doing something easier. And so we wanted to make more working for us than they could anywhere else so that they want to keep that job. They want to keep job. Yeah. Well, brilliant minds think alike. If I were you, I'd be doing the same thing because the cost of paying somebody a little bit more is so cheap compared to how much money they're making you as opposed to like paying somebody a little bit less and then having them leave and having to then retrain somebody or there's always risk in terms of then finding somebody else. I, yeah, no, mm-hmm. it's very basic common sense. In this world that you're dealing with, and I don't know if it's changing like today, here it is, November 2023, but as of when you started in Oklahoma, what was the competitive, what was the competition to buy the kind of assets, the distressed assets you're buying? Well, let me carve that apart because it's it's really competition we see in the market and then just separately for the distressed assets. All the way through, there have been very few people at the table on the distressed assets. And that's one of the reasons we like it. One, maybe two groups that in our markets that do what we do. You know, it's just, it's, it's an entirely different discussion. Now, we're not, we're not vultures. We don't try to lowball and things like that. We pay, uh, we make offers on properties that we think are fair, but it has to be so that we can hit our return hurdle with conservative assumptions. And so the price is just the price. And we're very disciplined about it. Um, we don't play games. You know, brokers know that we we have a reputation for not retrading. We do what we say we're going to do, and we close, unless there's fraud. We had two two properties that we looked at, and both situations were fraud, and they were the same broker. And guess what? We don't take that call anymore. But um, you know, I think that it's just it's just it's not for the it's not for the lighthearted. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a lot of work, and it's there are bad surprises. You get any properties? You know, it's tough, tough sledding. For the first year or two, but again, the, the returns can be so striking. I mean, we we bought a Freddie Mac foreclosure December of twenty one, and most people say, you know, if you bought anything last year or two, you know, you're you're in a mess. Well, you know, we we bought it on fixed rate bridge, and when we took over that property, it was doing forty five k in revenue a month. This month, it'll do one hundred and seventy k in revenue. I mean, that's. You can't do that on a going and buying an A-class property. You can't move the dial that much. And so, yeah, it's a lot of work, but you know what? It, it, the returns are there. And so I think where we are in Oklahoma, though, when we first started up there, people were like, why the hell would you be investing there? And we just, we saw the opportunity and we liked how it, it penciled out for us. But in the last you know three years or so, we've seen a, a dramatic increase in competition because the other markets got uh, so expensive that people were looking for places where deals could still make sense. And so we were seeing a lot of increased traffic, but you know, I would be obviously across the whole country, not just in Oklahoma or Texas or you know, those states, but um, that has changed materially because we already said, you know, a lot of these groups were not quite as prudent. They weren't on fixed rate. They they overpaid for deals and the only way to make them pencil was to use floating rate debt and because it was a cheaper interest rate. And so now they're dealing with the double issue that they pay too much and their debts moved against them radically. Even if they had a rate cap, that rate cap's probably expiring because most of those are just done for two years. And uh, you know what used to cost 40 grand now costs probably 800 or a million to get reset. And so it's a mess. A lot of these problems are not mathematically solvable. Uh, with while maintaining equity. So we're going to see 
and have seen a lot of deals presented to us where it's 100% equity wipeout for the, the owner that bought it and did it wrong. And in some cases where it's likely to trade below, you know, 10 to 20% below unpaid balance on the loan. And so there are going to be a lot of workouts. We've seen a, a fairly significant uptick in people reaching out to our firm in the last 60 days. But I think we're probably third inning at this point. I think we've got a ways to go. You know, it is our view that the Fed is going to have to cut rates. They'll tell us, they tell us publicly that uh, they're probably going to cut twice next year. I think that's what's on, on their dot plot, if I remember correctly. But it's just, again, we, we depend on the math to help form our decisions. And if you look at who higher interest rates hurts the most, it's the US government. They're the biggest debtor in the world. And they have $33.7 trillion in debt now. So their debt service has gone up since December 21. It was, I think, 603 or $604 billion. That number has now crossed $1.2 trillion. Most of the headlines you'll read say a trillion. They just hit it, but that's based on about three-month-old data that the government publishes. We've literally downloaded all the debt securities of the United States government, looked at the maturity dates when they're resetting, assumed that if they had it on a two-year, it renews on a two-year. If they had it on a 10, it renews on a 10. That's probably not actually the way it's going to play out because uh, the Treasury is, is collapsing the maturities, which is actually exactly the wrong strategic move right now. But that's just what they're doing because that's they, they were having an issue in the debt market where people weren't wanting to buy the debt. There's just too much supply. So anyway, my point is, they'll claim that they have beaten inflation, whether they do have done it or not. They've changed the CPI calculation a couple dozen times in history, including last January, uh, where they every time it, it has the impact of suppressing the number. And so we're, we're certain that they'll continue to doing what they've always done and that play games with the CPI calculation to show a lower inflation rate. But we believe that by design, they have to have inflation in order to pay back the debt. But, um, but they are going to have to cut rates at some point, it's our belief. So if we can pencil something in right now at these high rates and it works, if in a couple of years rates are lower, it's going to be uh, you know, just... just old. So part of what you just described uh, is the reason or one of the reasons you decided to transition out of being a, a hedge fund manager and, and getting into hard assets. Is that correct? Absolutely. Um, in during the financial crisis, we had, um, like I said, we had sold all of our, I had sold all my investment property in 07, but I formed Elkhorn in 2010 uh, explicitly because I knew or didn't know, but I, I felt confident that the Fed was going to have to print a ton of money and it was going to be highly inflationary. And so I wrote a piece, published a piece, I think it's been probably three years ago now, maybe more about inflation and why we felt that it was going to be high and sustained. And it was pretty contentious at the time, but now I think people would read it and they go, yeah, of course that's true because we've lived through it the last few years. But uh, it's just being thoughtful, just doing the math. You know, just don't make your decisions based on the narrative or the headline. Do the work and, and dig into the numbers, see what it says. And the math would tell us that uh, the government is going to have to monetize their own debt again. Every country that's ever started doing that has never been able to stop. Our, our country had said, oh yeah, we can stop anytime. <laughs> you know that, how that phrase goes. And the problem is there's not going to be a buyer for the debt at, the, at these volumes that we're, we're needing them to. Yeah, cause, and part of that's triggered by the, the policy decisions. You know, we did the sanctions on Russia instead of going to a hot war, trying to solve the Ukrainian issue in a different way. But we, uh, we basically took them off the SWIFT uh, currency exchange and, and we took their 
um, reserves, their dollar reserves. And so when we took their dollar reserves, it taught the rest of the world that, hey, it, we can't keep all of our, our country's reserves in dollars. Look what the U.S. just did and what happens if they get mad at us. And so even our own allies started selling treasuries. And so China's been selling. Russia obviously isn't going to buy anymore. Um, you know, it's a mess. And so somebody's got to buy it. And the government over the years, they changed the regulations to try to force some into banks. And we see how, see how that's worked out for the banks. A lot of them were holding these mortgage-backed securities and treasuries on their, on their balance sheet. And with the rapid increase in, in rates, they've impaired the value dramatically. And so they're struggling with that. I don't think they're going to be big buyers going forward. And um, again, you just do the math and there's, there's not a buyer big enough to take it all. So they'll probably have to buy it again themselves, which is inflationary. So because it's just, it's just mouse click money. They, they print money to turn around and you know, mm. buy their debt or support the mm. debt payments. Okay, changing. Yeah. Happy Friday. <laughs> <laughs> this is being recorded on a Friday. Well, like, uh, you know, I, yeah, I post, uh, I, I don't post a lot, but when I do, it's on LinkedIn and it, it's always macroeconomic in nature. But I try to just filter it down and, and just say what, what I'm seeing, the important points, but I always... Uh, sign off by saying position accordingly. And, and to explicitly answer your question, I believe positioning accordingly, one of the ways to do that is best way expressed in owning hard assets, real estate specifically. And I like within commercial real estate, I like multifamily the best. Reason for that is if we own a couple hundred units uh, at one property, we've got someone renewing almost every day. And so we can adjust our rents or um, to the changing economy or environment almost immediately. Whereas someone that's maybe has a you know, huge commercial space for a retailer or a, a CVS or something like that, they probably have a 20-year lease with predefined inflation step-ups on rent each year. So in a highly inflationary environment that doesn't protect the owner, they could actually get really squished uh, because the step-ups aren't as much as they're experiencing uh, on the expense side. Oh, makes, makes 100% sense. Uh, sense. Do you envision uh, or do you have your eye on other markets besides Tulsa and Oklahoma City? What would they be? We do. Uh, we have a top 10 list. A handful of those we had to some extent marked off just because they had become too pricey. We'll probably reevaluate that now as pricing is getting reset in the market. But I think that my expectation is that, like I said, I think we're probably third inning of, of an inning thing here. And um, so I think that there is some blood in the water already, but I think it's going to get a lot worse as we progress in the coming months because more and more of those rate caps are going to expire. People that have been feeding these loans to help support them are running out of money. And I think there's going to be a lot of people trying to to sell in, in another handful of months, either trying to or being forced to. So I think if that plays out, if that thesis plays out as expected, I really think our lowest risk path is to stay focused in the markets we're in because we we know where the landmines are and there are going to be enough transactions that we can um, stay very active in those two markets, I think. Now, do I want to own in other markets? Absolutely. There, there are you know, two or three that I really like that I would like to have a significant position in as well, but I don't think now's the time for me to, to make those that transition. Because the other benefit too, where we are, we have our team. We have a bunch of employees up in, in Oklahoma. And we know even if we needed to ramp up quickly, we, we know other personnel in the market, that, who's good and who's not, and things like that. And so I think 
depending on our quality team and our expertise in the market of where to own and what not to own, I think that's going to be invaluable as things start moving a little bit more quickly. If uh, if there, w- what are the two to three markets that it, if you felt comfortable or encouraged enough by the value, what would the, to, to expand? What would they be? What are those markets? <laughs> You're trying trying to force me to answer that. Huh? Um, I think that um, yeah, I don't like that's to announce fine. where I'm that's going fine. before I get there, and so yeah, yeah. Once I build a position, right, we no can problem, talk about no it. problem, Bruce. And how many, roughly, how many units do you guys have under management at this point? We have a couple thousand, roughly. Right. So you're, so you're a big fish in a in a small to medium sized pond, and and you guys are uh, you like to be within four hours drive or, or a Southwest flight. It's a very, very, very compelling story. I got to tell you, I never know what where the conversation's going to go, but I'm like, I'm a buyer, man. So. You've been doing this a long time. You're a smart guy. What uh, what would you say are the key lessons or lesson you've learned doing this? Mm, discipline. Yeah, that, that's critical. Staying disciplined uh, on your investment criteria and your thesis and, and how you model these things. Don't change assumptions just to make the deal work. You know, I, I speak on publicly on panels at, at industry conferences periodically. And I remember I was at one, I think it was, I think it was a year before last, maybe, or maybe it's just, but yeah, it's, I think it's two years ago. I came down and there was a, there were a group of people wanting to ask me questions, I remember. And you could tell one guy was kind of holding back and wanting to be the last one to ask and let everybody else go first. And so I knew he had something private he wanted to talk about. But he asked me, he said, hey, if, if what you're saying plays out economically with inflation and everything else, he said, how, you know, I have this deal under contract and it's three and a half cat. He's like, how will I make money on that uh, if it plays out how you say? I said, well... I have to be honest with you. I don't know how you make money on it, even if it doesn't play out that way. <laughs> like, I just I would never pay that high of a valuation for a property. I say that when our going in cap rates are usually pretty low because they're broken properties. But that's that's a different way. Uh, you know, we can't value things strictly on cap rates the way we look at them. But um, I think that people get caught up in the moment. They get excited. They think it's you know free money, and it's just everybody's making money, and it's it's a big party. And nothing can go wrong. And I think you have to worry about all the things that could go wrong. I probably worry about that too much. Um, just nature of my industry experience and what I've been through. <laughs> I'm not always happy uh, about uh, about the outlook, but you know, people don't pay me to be an optimist. They pay me to get yeah. it right. Okay. Sounds like you do uh, deal to deal. Uh, have you ever thought about doing a fund or does it not make sense in terms of how narrowly focused you are and you... Sounds like you guys are really like uber conservative, and you're not trying to expand to ten thousand units in the next year. Yeah, you know, it's not about the doors. And I would um, let, me, let me talk about structure on the tail end of his answer. But you know, I see so many people at these conferences or different, just just out in the wild, as they say, where they're they're bragging about, they're like, "Oh, I've got ten thousand doors." Like, wow, why don't I know you? You know, you, you, that's that's huge. And and then you poke at it a little bit, and it's it's really disingenuous. They, they Maybe they bought, you know, they put a hundred thousand dollars in a deal that was buying two thousand doors, and so they count two thousand doors. Or, you know, they helped raise some money for a deal and they co GP'd it. And I think I have a strong argument that, or strong belief that it should be weighted by ownership percent. You know, it's just again having been in an SEC registered business for so long, so much of my career, hyper paranoid about touching other people's money, how you deal with it, what you say, and. It has to be truthful, and yeah, I just feel like some of these people—it's just wild west out there. So, you know, my two thousand door, and I'll tell you, this this comes to mind because I was at this conference last week, 
and I, it sounds like I'm a conference junkie. I'm absolutely not. I go to very few of them. But guy next to me is a really interesting guy. He has, I think, 6,000 doors or so. And just some of the comments he made, I felt like he, you know, he, he's done well, but he's not, he's not flying private or anything. And so, and I'm, you know, kind of poked out a little bit. Well, come to find out he's doing 95 five splits or 90 10 splits. And so he's getting very little. He may be doing these great big door counts and great big deals, but he's not making very much. No, that's no fun. And so your heavy lifts, you know, if you do the math on how much we make, how much our LPs make, or, you know, if your LPs don't make money, they don't come back to the party. So I'm, I'm well aware of that, but we take a, a larger split than what someone might have to on a, a nice, pretty, pristine asset that's going to be hard to make money with. And so, but our LPs have always netted a, a good return and it, it works well. But I mean, they're, they're much heavier lift and take more time. And because of that, we get, get a bigger piece. What was the other part on that? I was going to, oh, structure, fund. Yeah, I don't like the fund model, at least my current thinking on it. And part of that is just, again, having been an investor for so long, if, if we were to go raise a big fund and we had all this money, well, as soon as those wires come in, clock's ticking. I have to go deploy that money. Otherwise, it hurts my average returns. And so that can force you to make some really bad decisions. You just go buy stuff because you have to buy stuff. You're not finding the best deal that you can. So there's that negative. It also is a completely different regulatory environment, which, you know, again, having been in the other side of the world, I would prefer to avoid as much as possible. Some of our investors, well, most of our investors are very sophisticated. And at this point, some of these people have invested in 10 or 20 deals with us. They've done well. They don't even hardly look anymore. But it gives them the opportunity, at least, to say, why this one? You know, we're good with you. We know you. We know you're, you'll make it happen. But um, why are we buying this one? You give them a couple sentences, a few five-minute discussion on, hey, this is what we're seeing. Okay, that makes sense. And so they can pick and choose. But we have some investors that invest with us. <laughs> They only like the really nasty looking stuff that we buy because they figure there's going to be more money in it. Uh, we, we've presented some nice deals to nicer looking deals to them and they didn't want to invest. And so it's, I don't know, even if the returns looked like they were better, but, um, you know, so everybody's got their own, their own flavor and uh, it allows them to make those decisions. Okay. Bruce, how does one find out more about you? How do they get a hold of you? What's the best way to um, engage? Yeah, probably two. Good ways. Uh, I already mentioned that I'm on, on LinkedIn. It's Bruce Fraser, F-R-A-S-E-R. Feel free to connect with me there so you can see the content that I put out. I don't, again, I don't put out a lot of content, maybe one, one thing a month or something like that. But uh, I've gotten really good feedback on that. We have, again, a very sophisticated uh, network on LinkedIn. Sovereign Wealth Fund CIOs and people like that that comment on some of my stuff. Uh, so LinkedIn's fine. Or, of course, you can go to our, our website, elkhornpartners.com and submit a form there to let us know you're interested in learning more about Elkhorn and uh, you can see our portfolio and whatnot. Got well. it. Well, listen, uh, by you, it's almost four o'clock. You're earning some, some honest money there. This has been a fantastic conversation. I, you know, I want to do it again in a year. I'm very, very, very impressed with what you do. That'd be great. It's- do the look back. Were we right or not? <laughs> I have a feeling you're going to be. Well, it, there's no one that disagrees with what you're saying. Although some people do say that there's so much money on the sidelines that prices aren't going to go down that much. But the counterpoint or a counterpoint that I've heard to that recently is that the big institutions are raising funds, but they're not out buying C-class stuff in, in Tulsa and Oklahoma City. 
So it's not the same universe. Right. Yeah, I think I think that's true. And I think um, there are a lot of people that have structured their business where they have to do deals. They, they can't make payroll unless they have transaction fees. And that's dangerous, really dangerous. And I've been shocked at, actually, there's a big firm based here in Dallas, really bright principal that I, I know. And he told me personally that himself that, you know, if we don't, if we don't buy or sell something, we can't make payroll. Like, wow, that's, that, you should not build an organization like that in my view. And so um, bad decisions are made. And so I think a lot of people are super motivated to do deals. The question is, where's their capital coming from? You know, if it's from individual investors, did they lose them money? Or are those people well-heeled enough or, and, you know, I guess, sophisticated enough to realize, hey, you buy when things are on sale and you don't wait until after the prices recover? That's what we see a lot of times with, them, with less sophisticated investors is times like now, like, oh, it's uncertain. I don't want to do it right now. Well, when is, it, when is the time to buy? I don't think we're at the bottom, but we're under contract to buy something right now. We're going to start you know, buying now and just buy all the way through it. We won't know where the bottom was until we look back. Hopefully in a year, we'll be done by that point. But uh, you know, once, once we're out of it or once the Fed starts cutting rates, if they do, I think it's going to be uh, too late to get good prices that because then everybody will be directionally, it's lower. Uh, and so prices will get bid up. People know inflation's still around and you're going to have one you know, you will have wanted to buy the stuff already. You think, you think that'll be in two years, you said? Yeah, <sighs> two, two years, years or less. I think it has to be. Otherwise, the government gets into a dead spiral. Pursuant to that issue where you've got an overhead so high that you literally have to transact to basically cover your overhead, you've got a couple thousand units. What's your overhead look like approximately headcount? Can you do this with fewer than 15 people at corporate? Not, not, not property level. Yeah, I mean, all in, I guess we have something around 50 employees. Um, I think here in kind of home base, well, in, in, the, in the ownership company, we have probably oh, four people. And then the rest are at the properties. Four key employees. And, yeah, yeah the rest are at the properties. Uh, have an asset manager. She's, she's, technic- she's in the ownership uh, company, but she's out in market, so she's not here in Dallas. But we probably, I'm actually considering adding a member to the team pretty soon. We haven't started interviewing yet, but... I think if things play out how we expect, we're going to need some help doing underwriting and things like that on additional deals, just some extra brain power to help out. Um, so I think it's a business that is highly leverageable. And I don't mean with debt, I just mean you can do a lot and make a lot with just a handful of people if you're smart about it. Sounds like you're smart. Well, this concludes. I look I, <laughs> fantastic. That. So impressed. Um, and I look forward to being in touch. All right. Thanks, Roger. 